Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The bull market in everything. Are asset prices too high? So asks the cover of The Economist magazine. Think about it. Low interest rates have made more or less all investments expensive across the planet, from bonds to stocks to real estate in big cities like San Francisco and in Singapore and in Hong Kong. How much of this is due to almost a decade of unprecedented easing by monetary banks? Are we due for a massive reckoning and a huge crash across the board? Or is this a new normal? And is there just so much cash that markets could still head higher? We ask The Economist. Stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by the support of Elwood Thompson's My Favorite Market in Virginia. You must try Chef Jeff's Sushi Bar. It's incredible. He will make you any sort of bespoke roll. You must try Indian Wednesdays. You must try breakfast there, the Blanchard's Coffees, and visit them at the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from Hong Kong is Simon Cox, Emerging Markets Editor at The Economist, uh, which you know had this massive package on the bull market in everything. Asset prices everywhere have been inflated since central banks the world over took to emergency interest rate policy now um, nearly a decade ago. Sir, how are you? Very well, thanks. You know, when I see things like this, and you could have started off the year saying markets were overvalued, you could have started off last year, 2016, saying markets were overvalued. We've had a jump here in the United States of about 13% this year in the S&P 500. Emerging markets have been on fire. The ancillary question always on my mind is, what do you want people to do? They're not getting paid anything on their savings. Cash is painful, and there seems to be no recollection that bear markets happen. Right. I mean, you make a fair point. I think probably it wasn't true that emerging markets were expensive last year. I mean, certainly at the beginning of 2016, they were plausibly quite cheap and they've rallied very strongly since then. So I think the missing piece in the sort of asset market rally was emerging markets until uh, earlier this year or around now. And now I think you can say that broadly speaking, um, developed market equities, emerging market equities, bonds in both parts of that universe and property are all expensive. Perhaps the only thing that's cheap are commodities. Um, you, you asked the question, um, what do you want people to do? Uh, I, I suppose it's fair to argue that um, you know, if it's true that fundamentals have shifted, if it's true that there's a savings glut, that there's a diminished willingness to invest, that savings are in excess supply, then you would expect uh, asset prices to be high. You have many people competing to buy the same things. And that's uh, a reason that perhaps we don't have to worry too much about these uh, elevated prices relative to their historical values. I think the worry, though, is this thing that people call uh, the search for yield, the reach for yield. Um, it's a phrase that gets banded around very often. Um, perhaps the simplest way to describe it is to sort of think of the case of a, a typical pension fund. And it may be in the past the pension fund could get 5%, say, a 5% return for some modest amount of risk. Now, if the world changes and if it happens that uh, savers are no longer in short supply, that there's a diminished willingness to invest, then maybe the sort of returns you can get for that level of risk drop. So maybe now you can only get 2% returns for the same level of risk. Now, how does the pension fund respond to that? Now, what they're supposed to do, according to the textbooks, is perhaps adopt slightly more risk and accept slightly lower returns. 
But what seems to be happening is that they say, no, we're used to 5% and we're damn well going to get our 5% regardless of the amount of risk we have to take on. So you see pension funds and uh, other institutional investors reaching for yields, that is investing in new asset classes or riskier assets, going to more exotic locations, uh, entering into alternative investments in order to get their 5%. That's not a textbook response that you would expect. And I see from the Economist's opener, the bull market and everything, it says, consider, for instance, investors' recent willingness to buy euro bonds issued by Iraq, Ukraine, and Egypt of yields around 7%. Um, well, exactly. Um, those are three very good examples. The other example that obviously people are uh, citing is uh, Argentina selling a 100-year maturity bond a century bond, uh, despite its long history of, of repeated defaults. Uh, these are very eye-catching uh, bond issues that really illustrate uh, how hungry people are for, for yield. Do you believe in that term that, that um, monetary people in the United States and investment managers throw around as financial repression, that uh, central banks take rates so low, they just smoke you out of safety and annoy you for this long? I mean, we're talking about interest rates. The Fed's main interest rate uh, before the onset of the financial crisis was above four or four and a half percent. Now it's in the mid one and a half percent range, and we're talking about record stock markets, unemployment at its what what if you want to believe it or not, the natural level. Inflation is very subdued. Uh, shouldn't rates be a lot higher to kind of compensate for the fact that the world has recovered and that there should be a competition for people's restive cash? No. Uh, so I don't agree with the, the term financial repression as applied to the United States. I mean, I often write about China. If you want to talk about financial repression, then you know, China is the place to look at it where until quite recently, there were ceilings, there were caps on the interest rates that banks could offer to depositors. And then there was a, a very um, determined effort uh, by the central bank to uh, buy up dollars and also to sterilize those foreign exchange purchases all of which took place in the context of capital controls that kept domestic savings captive. There was financial repression in China. America is very different. I think uh, perhaps the easiest way to think about it is to distinguish, if you can, between the level of interest rates, let's say the level of benchmark base interest rates and risk premia. So these are the, this is the extra yield, the uh, extra interest rate, if you like, that you would normally expect to compensate you for more risky investments. Now, central banks have to look at what's going on in the economy. They have to look at uh, inflationary pressure. They have to look at employment. And they'll make a judgment then about what the level of base interest rates should be. And I think uh, that their judgment has been, if anything, not dovish enough. So I would not blame the central banks for keeping rates low. But then what also has happened is that the risk premia have been squeezed. And that's largely a result of the uh, somewhat irrational response that I described earlier, this, this reach for yield. So you could imagine a world in which base interest rates fell by, let's say, two or three percentage points, and the risk premium stayed the same level. So you know, instead of, uh, let's say, a 3% Fed funds rate and plus 3% for riskier corporate bonds, you brought it down to zero for the Fed funds rate, but still plus three for riskier bonds. You could imagine that world. That's not what we had. We had the Fed funds rate coming down to nearly zero, and at the same time, the plus three went down to sort of plus one or plus two, right? There was a, a compression in the extra yield you would normally expect for uh, riskier assets. I don't think the Fed's happy about that. I think it worries about that compression. 
I'm not sure what it can do about it, to be frank. Mm. In his most recent letter to shareholders, Vitaly Katzenelson of Investment Management Associates in, in Denver, he uh, wrote, the Great Recession may be over, but seven years later, we can still see the deep scars and unhealed wounds it left on the global economy. In an attempt to prevent an unpleasant revisit to the Stone Age, global governments have bailed out banks in the private sector. These bailouts and subsequent stimuli swelled global government debt which jumped 75% from $33 trillion in 2007, a decade ago, to $58 trillion in 2014. And that number has only gone up in the past three years. It seems like you know debt took us into this, but there seems to be an over-reliance on debt to, to you know, get us out of it and to be the normal. Right. So this is a favorite theme of uh, many people in the financial industry, and uh, it verges on economic illiteracy. Um, what we've seen uh, was you know, a massive over-leveraging of the private sector. Uh, this was particularly clear in countries like uh, Ireland, uh, Spain, uh, during the bubble years um, before the financial crisis. And so these were people who were willing to spend much more than they earned, right? Mm. Now, when that happens, it has an effect on the rest of the economy. And a big part of the rest of the economy is the government. So what you often see is that when the private sector is over-exuberant, when it's spending more than it earns... The government sector earns more than it spends. It collects more in tax revenue than it uh, projects out in public spending. There's a sort of seesaw. Now, when this goes into reverse, when the private sector uh, overextends itself, gets a shock, tries to um, draw in its horns, you see the private sector trying really, really hard to spend less than it earns. But in order for it to do that, someone else in the economy has to do the opposite. Someone else has to be buying the private sector goods uh, allowing them to earn their money, even as they ref themselves refuse to spend. And so the government was forced into that role. The government deficits you talked about were the flip side of the attempt by the private sector to run a surplus, to uh, spend less than they earned. If they hadn't done that, we would have had the Stone Age that was mentioned by the investor you just described. So it was absolutely necessary for governments to do that. It was necessary and also it was sustainable. That's the important point. Because you have the private sector, which is trying really, really hard to earn money and put it into some sort of asset, some safe asset. It doesn't want to spend it on other things. It wants to buy uh, something that will store its purchasing power. And a natural place for them to put that money is government bonds. So there was a natural constituency, a natural customer base for the additional debt the governments had to issue. So as long as it was necessary, it was also sustainable. Now, as when the private sector begins to recover its risk appetite, when it begins to uh, become willing again to spend more, then those deficits will become less sustainable, but also less necessary. Uh, and that will allow uh, the governments to repair their public finances. But until that time, it would be very premature for governments to sort of heed these uh, warnings about excessive debt levels and to enter into premature fiscal consolidation. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Simon Cox, Emerging Markets Editor at The Economist. He, he joins us from Hong Kong uh, in his evening, 12 hours ahead. I have to ask you, uh, to the extent that you're there, there, how do you wrap your gray matter around China um, on the verge of becoming the biggest economy in the world? And arguably, in the, you know, I would say that if you look at the Jim Chano school of thought, is living in a debt bubble. Uh, from 2007 to 2014, if you take McKinsey numbers, the country's debt quadrupled from $7 trillion to $28 trillion. Over the same stretch, its economy tripled, uh, growing from $3.5 trillion to $10.5 trillion. Do you believe 
that there's staying power, that this can be parlayed into domestic consumption, that it's not just the government printing money and building bridges to nowhere and, and empty Potemkin cities and bullet trains that nobody uses. How do you how do you think about this? And especially in terms of how it affects the emerging markets across the planet. I mean, how good is Peru if China's not really good for the money? Yes. So I think one of the biggest uh, fears hanging over emerging markets is what will happen to China. And probably the scariest statistic in the emerging markets universe is China's debt to GDP ratio. Uh, the, the, the number that's often used is 213%, uh, which is the ratio of uh, non-government debt to GDP. And uh, as well as being quite high, it's risen incredibly quickly uh, since the financial crisis. Um, I think there were sort of two phases to that rise. Uh, in 2009, uh, it was largely because of a, a massive increase in bank lending uh, driven by the government in order to counteract the catastrophic effect of the global financial crisis. And you, you cannot overstate how damaging the global financial crisis was to China's economic prospects. Um, it was a world historic collapse in trade and they had to do something to compensate. So they urged the banks to lend heavily to governments, uh, local governments, in order to do the sort of infrastructure spending you just described. That was 2009. What's happened since then has been actually very different. Uh, lending growth has slowed quite steadily since that uh, 2009 bonanza. But what's happened is that uh, the other side of the equation, so GDP growth, has also slowed uh, quite dramatically, uh, particularly nominal GDP growth. Everyone focuses on the headline number for China, which has been you know, reasonably steady. I mean, it's, it's never been far below uh, 7%. But if you look at nominal GDP, that's not adjusting for inflation. That's come down really very sharply. Um, you know, it used to be in the range of 18%. And recently, so in 2015, it was more like 6 or 7%. That's an extraordinary slowdown. And it meant that the credit to GDP ratio carried on rising, even though credit growth was slowing. You know, it's a ratio. So there's a top and a bottom to it, right? You have to pay attention to both mm -hmm. the numerator and the denominator. And so in 2009, it was all about the top. The lending growth was very strong. But since then, it's been mostly about the bottom. It's been about uh, GDP growth, nominal GDP growth being slow. So there's a sort of a puzzle, which is um, why has nominal GDP growth been slow, given that all this credit's been created? And uh, the answer to that puzzle is to look at where the credit has been going. Because instead of the credit being spent on new goods and services that would contribute to GDP, uh, it's been spent a lot on property and land. And if you buy a piece of land, uh, that transaction actually adds nothing to GDP because you're not producing anything new. And not, not only that, Simon, it seems to border on, on fetish, the obsession with property in China. I mean, it's not an equity culture. You don't have very clear and open uh, ability to invest in um, um, you know, fungible shares and foreign shares. This is a this is a country that knows property, and you see these you see these famous things in massive cities when a sky rise, uh, when when a skyscraper opens up and people in the lobby wanting to get in and and capital formation around property. What is it about China's exploding cities and and the hunt the hunt for you know single family housing? Right. I mean, there are a whole variety of explanations. You know, some of them more. Um, arcane than others. I mean, there's actually quite a, a good economics paper arguing that a lot of this is about uh, China's sex ratio. Uh, the fact that um, it's become harder for young men 
to find a, a suitable mate. And so in order to sort of demonstrate their financial worth, they have to save up for a, a property uh, so that they can sort of offer a potential bride um, this nice apartment in Shanghai. And then that might be part of the reason for the, uh, the fetish you just mentioned. But you know, broadly speaking, it's about looking for a store of value, right? Um, you know, this is a country in which uh, incomes have grown quite quickly, but uh, it has suffered from financial repression. The, the options for savings are fairly uh, grim, fairly meager. Uh, occasionally, there'll be a stock market bubble and everyone will pile into that. Um, but broadly speaking, if you want to project purchasing power into the future, if you want to transfer resources into the future, you need some kind of store of value. And property uh, up until now has been uh, the principal one. Um, and so I think people are, you know, buying properties with the view of selling them when they get old to the next generation who will be equally eager to buy them in order to do the same thing. Um, and you know, that can continue indefinitely as long as there's one generation after another willing to, to, to plunge a big percentage of their income into this asset. Is it childish of me to think back to ninth grade when we were assigned the, the famous book, The Good Earth, and the peasant farmer Wang Long saved all of these pieces of silver? and put them in a trap door under the dirt floor. I mean, cash is cash. Uh, gold is gold. Why does it have to kind of transmogrify into property, which has all of these other strings attached and carrying costs? And and uh, I'm, I'm not very familiar with the mortgage market in China, if that's developed. Um, again, why does it recourse to that? Well, it's bricks and mortar. And, uh, you know, it's it's an asset that everyone understands, or at least everyone thinks they understand. Um, the mortgage market actually has grown very quickly in the last couple of years. It's become one of the new sources of worry. There's always something to worry about with China. And uh, the fast development of mortgages is, is the sort of latest, the worry du jour. Um, but I think, you know, this uh, thriftiness is definitely, you know, part of the culture here. Um, savings rates amongst households remain you know, reasonably high. And a tangible bricks and mortar asset uh, is you know, attractive compared with the alternatives, which are you know, bank accounts that, as I mentioned, offered until recently government controlled interest rates and a stock market that's full of crazy fads and, and rather poor minority investor protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, also capital controls, right? So it's, it's hard to diversify your assets uh, externally without doing an awful lot of paperwork. Simon, how did how did China, uh, mainland China, and obviously, you know, admittedly, this was four or five years before um, it went into the WTO. How did it deal with the late '90s crash in these uh, Asian tigers? I mean, was it largely immune? Has this been kind of an uninterrupted rally for the better part of twenty five years? I don't recall a time when when the modern Chinese economy has had a true crash. So what's very interesting is what happened just a few years before the Asian financial crisis. Um, and China had a sort of mini crisis of its own. It's, it's called a soft landing, but by today's standards, it was pretty hard. Uh, this was in the days of uh, Zhu Rongji, you know, who was considered one of the sort of tougher and perhaps uh, bolder um, economic reformers in China. They had a horrible inflation crisis sort of at the end of the 80s and the early 90s. They also, of course, had the uh, economic fallout from the Tiananmen Square incident. Um, And so uh, they actually really struggled in the early 90s to control inflation. It was way above 20%. Uh, And with a determined effort, uh, Zhuangji managed to bring it to heel uh, by about sort of 94. They also did a big devaluation. They unified their exchange rates. So by the time 97, 98 came around, 
um, China had actually managed to stabilize. And many people at that time worried that they would devalue again, given that the currencies all around them had collapsed, but they didn't. And that was actually one source of stability in a very uncertain time in a very uncertain region. So China sort of stuck to its, um, uh, its exchange rate peg, became a sort of anchor. Um, and so it actually contributed, I think, to, to regional stability at that time. Um, it then clung to that anchor for an awfully long time. And, you know, as you will remember in the sort of early 2000s from around 2003, people started complaining that China had undervalued yuan. But um, in the late 90s, it had an opportunity to devalue, but refused to do so. And I think that did, uh, that did a favor to, to the region's uh, recovery. There was a great paper written in um, Grant's Interest Rate Observer, I believe it was six or seven years ago, on what a Chinese hard landing might look like in the current uh, age where you have this multi-trillion dollar behemoth that is on verge of becoming the world's largest economy in you know maybe a decade or so. Uh, how would that play out in terms of the United States' reaction? I'm interested, for example, in commodity prices, in um, the demand for dollars, in treasury yields, uh, that they are the marginal buyer, that they're out there voraciously buying up United States paper. I mean, could it, and this sounds mercenary, could it be a good thing for the Western Develop the market consumer to see oil potentially back at ten dollars a barrel, or uh, mm. food price inflation not bad. I know you're giggling in the background, but people people forget that oil did fall to ten dollars a barrel. I think in 1998 after the rolling emerging market crisis. Yeah, I mean, I think if you want cheap oil, it's better to have a supply increase rather than a demand drop. And of course, you know, US has become a big oil producer. So um, as we saw um, when the oil price fell in 2014. You know, that actually hurt a number of um, big spending, highly leveraged uh, U.S. shale producers. Um, no, a China crash would not would not be a good thing. Um, it would uh, hurt commodity exporters, particularly. Um, what it would do to the U.S. Treasury market, I think, is interesting because what we saw in 2015, which was new, I think, was that China affects the rest of the world through financial channels as well as trade channels now. It's always been quite important to trade, but people have always assumed it's been fairly insulated in the financial markets. In 2015, when China uh, modestly devalued the renminbi, caused a big shock. Uh, it actually had quite a profound effect on risk sentiment and financial markets. And so I think that actually, if China uh, suffered the sort of shock you just described, you might see uh, a search for safety and you might see uh, people piling back into U.S. Treasuries. Yeah, that's uh, that's the dropping. interesting Rorschach that our Treasury yields drop again because we have this unusual position. And I say we, as someone here on the East Coast, United States Eastern Standard Time, that it, it has been looked at as the redoubt of safety. Take China out of the picture, and uh, people go into developed currencies and developed paper. I just I just worry in that we have not even in a Monte Carlo simulation have not seen. The uh, implications of, of systemically what would happen in a in a true Chinese reckoning, a true Chinese crash. If you buy the Jim Cheno school of thought that this is the biggest bubble on record, uh, are you going to see, for example, Western banks with huge renminbi exposure or, or local denominated uh, securities uh, come out of the woodwork, and you're going to see bailouts and rolling bailouts? And moreover, I want to hit you on the rest of the emerging market economies. To what extent could a Brazil? decouple from that situation? To what extent could uh, some of the Eastern European economies, or Mexico, uh, the knock on emerging markets for the better part of you know, 15, 20 years has all been that they've, they're only as good as China is? 
So I wouldn't worry about US bank renminbi exposure. That's pretty modest. I don't think that would be a big fallout. There does seem to be this more intangible impact on risk sentiment that, again, we saw in August 2015 quite clearly. Um, it's not that the links are all that easy to identify. It's just a general feeling that things are going badly and, and that has uh, ripple effects for all sorts of assets. And then you have, um, you know, obviously, countries like Australia that have uh, fed China's boom. They tend to be affected quite quickly, uh, although Australia has a fairly robust macro policy framework and pro could probably offset some of the damage. Um, so the people that really suffer, I mean, one, the commodity exporters that are a little bit more dependent on those commodities in Australia, plus the ones that are sort of really plugged into China's supply chain, you know, so Taiwan, Korea, uh, these are all quite sensitive. And then um, you have the emerging markets that are affected through financial channels. So these tend to be uh, emerging markets with quite open capital markets, quite high foreign participation, quite liquid financial markets. And as a reward for developing their financial markets, they tend to be the countries that are sold first and earliest when uh, global investors take fright. So I'm thinking of Korea and, and Malaysia, who have quite high foreign participation. Um, and you know, when there's a sort of risk-off episode, when uh, you know the wise heads in in Wall Street decide that emerging markets are now a bad bet, everyone gets sold indiscriminately, and the people that have the most liquid markets get sold first and hardest. I do want to know, and you had this in the in the subhead in the special report. What exactly is an emerging market? I don't consider Korea, South Korea, for example, an emerging market anymore. I think about a Hyundai or a, a Samsung as a as a, a indispensable multinational. This is not the this is not the same country where people were collecting their, uh, you know, the won and 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 donating jewelry in the streets in 1997 to rescue the economy. It's really come a long way, and especially if you compare it to where it was, say, in 1980 or 1970. I'm really troubled, if you will, by the classifications, because in the end, the investor is buying an emerging market index and, and hoping that that doesn't correlate with the other assets that he has, be it an S&P 500 or a European index fund. Um, what is in a name? I do want to know. I mean, Brazil, Russia, India, China, that was the flavor of the month 12 years ago. But now we look at different tiers of things. In Israel, for example, I mean, that's considered, I believe, a developed economy. But why is that more developed than a South Korea? So that's an excellent question. Um, I think, you know, absolutely, I, I wouldn't personally consider Korea or Taiwan to be emerging markets any longer. Uh, the IMF doesn't consider them emerging markets any longer. But the benchmark stock market index that everyone has to track, follow, keep an eye on does consider them emerging markets. So the MSCI emerging markets index, which all uh, asset managers in the equities sphere will be judged against includes uh, Korea and Taiwan. It also includes some incredibly rich countries like uh, Qatar and United Arab Emirates uh, that you know, are richer in per capita GDP terms than uh, you know, even uh, Europe or the United States. Um, so it's a very uh, mixed bag. Um, there's no clean definition. I mean, uh, sort of facetious thing is to say it's, a, it's an economy that's not too rich, not too poor, and not too closed to foreign investment. That would be the one sentence summary of an emerging market. Um, I think historically, they have been seen as economies that offer um, higher risk, but higher return, perhaps a source of diversification, so perhaps not so tightly correlated to the developed world. And there also tend to be economies that struggle to implement counter-cyclical policy. So they tend to be 
countries that when things go bad have to raise interest rates to defend their currencies, have to pare back government spending in order to balance their budgets. So they're economies that don't uh, benefit from uh, the kind of slack that a United States would get where you know it can do um, fiscal stimulus or cut interest rates when its prospects darken. Emerging markets don't get the benefit of the doubt in the same way. But that's changing. Um, I mean, one of the uh, messages I wanted to get across in, in my special report is to say that this sort of quintessential characteristic, this almost defining characteristic of emerging markets is becoming uh, less and less a good description of the current reality. They have become more re uh, resilient uh, in their macro policies. They have now got more uh, room for maneuver when things turn bad. Uh, and we're seeing it right now with the, you know, the Fed gently uh, considering tightening. A lot of central banks in emerging markets are no longer following in lockstep. They're actually uh, cutting interest rates rather than raising them. What if commodities? On balance, I mean, these economies do really well when commodities are flush and high in price. I mean, if I think of a Peru, if I think of a Brazil, if I think of an Argentina and and uh, the demand for beef and soya beans and, and whatnot. But why doesn't it cut both ways? What I never understood is that why don't these countries also benefit when commodity prices are in the tank and consumers ostensibly have more money to spend? I think that's been one of the big mysteries of the last uh, three years since the 2014 drop in, in commodity prices. I mean, a lot of economies in my part of the world, in Asia, um, are commodity importers. And we were expecting an offsetting benefit that would uh, balance out uh, the emerging market pain that obviously you know, Russia was feeling and uh, places like Chile were feeling. Um, we saw that a little bit. So, you know, for example, India had a horrible inflation problem that got a lot easier to deal with when the price of oil dropped. Uh, same is true of Pakistan. Uh, Philippines has been doing very well. But I think, you know, what happened was there was so much caution that any windfall people got from cheaper commodity prices, they saved rather than spent. And the only people who'd been willing to spend were the commodity producers who thought that prices would stay high. Uh, we saw this a bit in the US as well, because obviously the United States, although it uh, does now have the shale industry, um, it's still, broadly speaking, uh, benefits when oil prices drop, uh, you know, consumers benefit. But uh, when that happened in 2014, uh, the shale producers stopped investing, uh, but American consumers didn't really spend uh, the windfall uh, in the shops. They, they uh, were more cautious about it. I was surprised in your analysis that to, to realize that the term emerging markets was only coined back in 1981, almost kind of uh, half-acidly, uh, to get people into a new asset class. I mean, now they're ubiquitous. You have all these ETFs that slice and dice it in 50 different ways. You can buy an emerging market dividend fund, a value fund. There's high liquidity, relatively lower you know, cost bases versus you know the two, 300 basis points um, and, and poor liquidity you'd have to deal with uh, to get into this asset class. From your vantage point, does diversification into emerging markets make sense for the Western investor or is it redundant if you're invested in an S&P 500 or these massive multinationals out of Germany or Switzerland that after all have operations in developing economies? Is it necessary? Does it truly, especially when you step back and look at the cover package and everything across the planet is so priced for perfection and correlations are so annoying and volatility is so muted that um, do you think it behooves a person to, to look for opportunities in emerging markets and even more in the frontier and on the bleeding edge of emerging markets? If you look at Ghana, if you look at, you know, I don't know if Vietnam is a frontier market anymore, but uh, constantly looking for new places that zag when everything else is zigging. 
Yeah, so I, I would dispute um, the term half-acid. I mean, it was a stroke of genius. I mean, the emerging markets um, replaced... Hey, wait, 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 you're disputing, you're disputing half-acid. You used mollycoddle in your analysis. Sir, I cannot <laughs> compete with an economist correspondent. <laughs> Um, so I got, a, I got a good with... score on the SAT verbal, but I, I'm nowhere <laughs> where you guys are. Go ahead. Um, it's a great word. I'm not disputing the word. I'm just not sure it describes. Um, uh, so it's Antoine van Agtmel, who's a Dutch, uh, Dutch-American, I think, uh, economist, worked for the World Bank for, for many years and uh, was you know, very keen on this idea of a diversified um, equity fund for what were then called third world economies. And so, you know, it was going to be called the third world equity fund. And he was told that, um, you know, it was a great idea, but the name really wouldn't sell. And so uh, he spent an entire weekend, I think, um, wrapped in thought and came up with emerging markets, which has you know, certainly been one of the most successful uh, marketing uh, slogans um, in investing history, I think. Um, but uh, you raise a very good point. Is it still a source of diversification? Is it still worth uh, investing in uh, an index? So, I mean, I think investors shouldn't be parochial. So I'm always rather shocked at how uh, Western-centric big asset managers remain. Uh, you know, if you work in the U.S. asset management industry, uh, you know, there's the U.S. and then there's the rest of the world. And then maybe after they've considered uh, the rest of the world, they'll think about emerging markets um, and they won't really differentiate very much amongst them. Um, and that seems like a missed opportunity to me. The, the problem with investing in an index is that they have become more correlated with developed markets. They're less uh, of a source of diversification. And you also get sort of overexposed to certain sectors that you perhaps don't associate with emerging markets. So you'll get a heavy exposure to banks because banks are always early to list and uh, they always have quite high market cap. You won't necessarily get high exposure to uh, you know, rapidly growing manufacturing, for example. So I think you know, if you're willing to put the time in, it's certainly worth looking at emerging markets, looking at some of the frontier markets and uh, investing on some basis other than uh, market cap. Um, there are some indexes that try to do this now. I mean, there's some sort of smart beta indexes that try and... Uh, allow you to invest in emerging markets based on some fundamental other than uh, just market capitalization. Um, I'm no longer in the business of offering investment advice, but, but that does strike me as an interesting way to approach this sector. And finally, in the few minutes uh, that we have left, I'd love to just throw one single word at you and, and do it by association. Rorschach, tell me what it means uh, and define it, if you will. Bitcoin. <laughs> um. So it's had a troubled history in China, as you perhaps know. Um, it was something that actually had a natural constituency in China. Um, you know, people are quite keen to find ways of uh, getting their money out of the country and also getting their money beyond the reach of government. And for precisely that reason, um, the Chinese government has, has frowned upon it and uh, it's taken a bit of a hit here. Um, What's probably more interesting in this part of the world is, is consumer fintech in general. I mean, it really has come on in leaps and bounds. It's become a little bit of a journalistic cliche, but it is incredibly striking when you go to China how uh, ubiquitous those QR codes are. And so everyone has these stories about, you know, um, street side stalls that will you know, sell you vegetables in return for uh, swiping your phone over a QR code. And even you know, beggars on the street. Uh, it's a classic journalistic cliche now, but, but still quite telling, I think. Uh, beggars on the street who will accept donations through a QR code 
just scanned uh, on your iPhone. <laughs> that is, um, I, I saw. I often wish Stanley Kubrick were still alive. I mean, the things he'd see. <laughs> Do- Donald Trump is president. Beggars on the street accepting QR codes. I mean, you know, soon you'll be paying buskers and panhandlers in Bitcoin. I mean, the market cap of Bitcoin, just to, to timestamp this today, uh, we are on uh, Friday the 13th of October. The market cap is just under $100 billion. It rallied to an all-time high of $5,856.10. It now has a market cap bigger than Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. And uh, for the life of me, I still cannot explain it to my mother at, at dinner in less than three hours. <laughs> That's not stopped speculative bubbles in the past. You know, The inability to explain the fundamentals of the asset you're selling uh, has never been necessary uh, in a bubble. It's almost a signature of a bubble that no one cares, right? Um, I mean, people in China famously will buy stocks that are going up without even knowing the name. So um, they just want to know the symbol. Um, so yes, uh, the, the the inability to explain what's going on is probably helping it rather than hurting it right now. Simon, close us out. Uh, look into your crystal ball. After all, if I was sitting, you know, twiddling my thumbs in the spring of 2007, looking around the world, saying, "What's going to take down this?" This, this period of, of profligacy and, and uh, high-risk appetites, where is it going to come from? We're looking for some banana republic or Minsky moment out of an emerging market. It happened in Wall Street and Main Street in the United States. The whole time, we, we lack this ability for introspection. Where is the next shock going to come from? What's going what's gonna to take us out of this lull? So uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to give you a boring answer. I mean, if it happens, and I don't actually think it will, I'm, I'm reasonably sanguine about the economy, if not necessarily the asset prices. If it happens, I think it will be surprise inflation in the US. I think that would change everything. I think if you have a sort of breakout uh, wage gains and uh, wage price pressures, upward wage price pressures in the US, that changes the Fed's calculus very quickly. And we've seen in, as recently as 2013, uh, that uh, asset markets can react very quickly and disproportionately to surprise tightening uh, in monetary policy in the US. So that would be my main concern. Hmm. Simon Cox of The Economist. Thank you so much. Your package was uh, exquisite this week, the Emerging Markets Package. Uh, and in, Within the cover package, The Economist, on the bull market in everything, Simon was joining us from Hong Kong. I cannot thank you enough, sir. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Full disclosure, catch us and love us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. On Twitter, we're at FullDRadio, Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. Hey, we are dollar, yuan, dong, and peso denominated. Always a margin of safety, never half-assed. Keep calm and mollycoddle on. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 